Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kurt Damon. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your host, Ben Siders. That's me. And the other guy is, as always, Kurt Damon. That's Kirk, as the captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders. You can find Kirk at Kirk DMN. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at LGG Pod or LGG Podcast. I always forget what it is. I don't have my cheat in front of me again. <laughs> I think it's LGG Podcast. If, if you want to find us on Twitter, you will find us. I have a lot of faith in our audience. Um, <laughs> we are going to talk copyright today. Shocking. Um, it is, we're recording this on Thursday, April 8th, uh, and we actually have the prior episode, episode three, uh, has already been recorded and not released yet as of right now. Uh, that's my fault. I just haven't gotten around to editing it uh, yet. But uh, if, if you listen to that episode, it may seem weird because we talk in an episode about the potential of an upcoming decision in the Google v. Oracle case. Well, that has since happened since when we recorded that, <laughs> when we're recording this. So uh, that has come down. And then Kirk has also found an interesting case from the second circuit that has fundamentally altered one of the very few bright line rules in fair <laughs> use law, which was that anything Andy Warhol does is fair it's use. Fair use. And it's not, not, anymore. Not, anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Andy finally lost. So we're going to talk about those two cases, uh, both fair use cases uh, and the Google v. Oracle case, which uh, at this point you've probably read, um, if you're in, you've been following it at all, you've probably read quite a bit about it. Um, Kirk and I have talked about this before and we finally have the decision. So we're going to do something we don't usually do and do a bit of a more detailed dive uh, into this one opinion. Uh, we, we like to kind of stick at the higher level. So this content is a little more evergreen and, uh, uh, you know, you can listen to it in three or four years and it still generally applies. But in this case, we're going to dig into this case, uh, and the, and the analysis and, uh, the reasoning, because it's, it's, one, it's, it's one of the biggest copyright uh, cases that's come down from the Supreme Court in, gosh, I mean, how long, Kirk? Year, at least five or six years. I can't think of it. At least a few years. Yeah. I mean, the only other major case we had come down was the cheerleading outfit one, and that yeah. wasn't nearly yeah. as big as this was. No. And then fourth estate, I guess, for the registration requirement, but that's more of a procedural thing that doesn't really change the substantive law that much. Uh, it's more of a, a thing that lawyers will be interested in. So we're going to get into this. Um, cognizant that our audience is a mix of lawyers and non-lawyers, uh, we're going to try to address the law at, at a layman's level as much as possible. Uh, but to understand this case, you really do have to understand some of the technology. In fact, in the underlying district court decision, the judge actually taught himself Java to help understand what this case was about. <laughs> Um, and uh, as much as I want to uh, laud and appreciate that effort, I don't think learning Java teaches you what you really need to know to understand the clearing code, why we have it and what it does. But it's still better than nothing. And I appreciate that we have jurists who are willing to, uh, to go to that extra effort, particularly for a case like this. So, so let's start out. Uh, let's cover some basics, Kirk. I'm, I'm sure everybody who's listened to this before has heard us talk about what copyright is uh, ad nauseum, but let's, let's go over the basics uh, for anybody who's new or who has forgotten. It's always helpful to do a refresher. Fundamentally with copyright, what are we talking about? So what we're talking about is the right to make copies or to prohibit people from making copies. Um, we're talking about something in an expressive work. So we're not talking about an invention. Um, we're typically talking about something which is not useful. Um, and that's a, an important thing that's going to come into play here in conjunction with copyright and in computer code. But basically, intellectual property right, it does you know use registration at the copyright office. But basically, what we're talking about is the code 
um, and specifically not the function of these things, the language of the code. And that's what we're really talking about here. When we talk about computer programs and copyrighted computer programs, we're talking about the language of the code. Yeah, um, if, if you go back to the Constitution, it, it has copyrights for what they call, um, I forget what the exact term is, but patents are for the useful arts and copyrights are for the expressive arts. So you may if you've ever gone, you've heard of the term, uh, you know, f- the fine arts, for example, the useful arts is the other side of that. The fine arts is the classical term for expressive works, music, literature, uh, uh, plays, things like that. And then the useful arts is uh, engineering, science, math, uh, the arts that uh, have some sort of functionality or utility applied to them. Uh, so copyright affirmatively does not cover the useful arts. It does not cover the functionality of things. It is only uh, directed to the uh, expression of things, creative things, original things. And the challenge with software is that it all kind of inherently has a little bit of both of that. You know, a line of code is expressive. It's, it's a list of instructions, basically. Yet you can't copyright a recipe because you can't copyright instructions for how to do something. Yet you can copyright source code, which is just instructions to the computer for how to do something. So, and you can copyright a recipe so long as you copyright the specific layout of the recipe. Right, right. The whole, the whole expression. So we, we, computer software lives in kind of a strange gray area where it, it is both copyrightable and patentable. Patents are not a part of this lawsuit. Uh, they were originally, which gives it a peculiar um, um, procedural posture that you don't normally see where we have the federal circuit applying ninth circuit law and then the Supreme Court reviewing that decision. So that, that's a bit of an oddity. Uh, we're also going to get into um, the fact that in the underlying jury trial, the jury found it was a fair use. The federal circuit reversed and the Supreme Court went back and reinstated the jury verdict. So that, that also, I think, influences this. But so the copyright is about copying. It's about taking a, and making a copy of something that somebody else has made. Uh, there's other rights that go with that, the right to distribute to the public and things of that nature. But for present purposes of this case, it's really just the right to make copies and that's a, that's a tough thing to deal with in computers because in a, in a book, it's easy, right? You don't accidentally make a copy of a book, you know? It just, if you've got the book, then you read it and you put it on the shelf. But with software, every time you run a program, a copy is loaded into memory. And then while you're running it, it might get swapped back to the disk, back to virtual memory, back to you know, RAM. It can be copied many, many times over and over again in the ordinary course of use. The copyright institution was a response to the printing press, not the invention of the compiler. So it doesn't fully contemplate this. There are some terms about you know, temporary copies that are ancillary to the use of a computer. Uh, those were added more recently, but it's sort of an odd fit for what we're talking about. So we're talking about copying and uh, the technology involved is, is also important because we're not talking about copying an entire program. We're talking about copying just one part of it. And, and what we mean by talking about one small part of it, it was actually, it's really one part of one part. Yeah, um, yeah, and right. I think that's even a better way to describe it. So we're talking about what ultimately is and what sort of um, Oracle had in this case is Java. Um, Java is a programming language. So I think we need to start with that idea that, yes. you know, this is what we're talking about in conjunction with this. Uh, it was originally developed by Sun microsystems which oracle bought mm-hmm. um and it was designed to be as sort of my understanding and i know ben's going to jump in on me if i if i say this wrong but it, was, <laughs> but it was really designed to be one of the first languages that was kind of platform independent it was designed yeah. to work in a lot of different things that's a crucial part of this decision so let's let's back up a little bit and talk about the context of when java was invented because it happens to be when kirk and i also learned to, to, to really program 
Well, so Java was launched in 1995. It was in, in significant measure a response to some platform portability challenges that had just plagued the industry at the time. I learned to program in C and C++. Those were As did I. Yeah, the, the dominant languages at the time for mainstream development, especially on uh, Linux and Unix operating systems, uh, including SunOS and Solaris, owned by Sun, which is actually the platform I learned to program on. So I know quite a bit about Sun. C and C++, when you, when you write software, you don't have to write everything it does. So when you sit down to write a program, I don't have to tell the computer how to display text on the screen. It already knows how to do that. I don't have to tell it how to read a keyboard you know, stroke from the keyboard and translate that into a character. It knows how to do that. Somebody's already written that code for you. I just need to know what, in, in C, we'd call it a function, uh, what special command or uh, a programming line to put into my code to do that. So if I wanted to print the word high Kirk on the screen in C, I would type printf parentheses quote high Kirk end quote end parentheses semicolon. That's it. That, that does it. And somebody else has written the printf function and what it does and how it works. Now, I think the real key to keep in mind there when you say somebody's written the printf function, the printf function in some sense is the portion of the language to know to print. The, the true code underlying a computer is assembly. And anyone who's ever tried to use assembly, assembly is a nightmare. Um, but assembly is basically the idea of moving bits around in a computer chip. Yes. I mean, we know it's a digital machine, ones and zeros. Assembly is the language on how to move ones and zeros. What yep. a language like C and C++ are is something to say, hey, you do a lot of that one and zero movement a lot. So we're going to call it something and we're going to make it so that that thing can be called repeatedly. And that's what kind of all next level languages are. And I'm trying to remember, because I know we did this when I was in one of my classes of like what those types of languages were. And there's like these different yes. levels of language. You've got, you've got the machine language, which is the binary instructions that are just dumped on the processor. And all they do is open and close a bunch of logic gates to move yep. bytes around the processor. Uh, if you take computer science curriculum, or at least when I took it, you did have to learn how to do that. It was called a, a, a macro program or a micro program. I forget which, but they made you translate the assembler into the bytecode for a particular processing architecture, which is a nightmare. I absolutely despise <laughs> it, but I did learn how to do it at least. Um, they also make you learn how to build a processor from the ground up using logic gates and an OR gates, which is also not fun. But anyway, so that's the machine code. That's the byte code or the machine language the, or what we call binary code that is directly executable by the processor. A next level up from that is assembler code, which is um, mostly human readable, but really hard to understand what it does. The assembler code is telling the computer uh, what you want it to do with the machine code on an almost one for one relationship. But it, it's not written in a way that you can really understand what the language is trying to do. You're doing things like moving bytes from the A register to the B register, adding the A register and the B register together, storing the result on the stack, popping a byte off of the stack. So if you don't know what stacks and registers are, um, then you're, you're never going to really understand why declaring code matters. So just understand that up front. But that's what assembly does. That's was it used to be called a mid-level language. It's probably not now. And then C and C++ for what we call the high-level languages, which were considered human-readable. A person could sit down and look at the code. If you understood the, the, the lexical structure and the syntax of the language, you could figure out what the code is telling the computer to do, and you could debug it just by looking through it and stepping through the lines of code and figure it out. Yep. Uh, C, in particular, is regarded more as a mid-level language now. It gives you a lot of powerful direct access to the computer resources. Uh, in modern development, that's uh, they call it a, they call it like having a hand grenade. If you know what you're doing, it's a powerful weapon. But if not, you're just going to blow yourself up. 
And <laughs> that happened with C all the time because uh, you had direct access to memory and things like that. So to, to make development easier and eliminate bugs and memory leaks and things like that, which were very commonplace with C, modern languages hide all of that behind layers of abstraction. And Java was one of the first uh, major commercial languages that did that. Another advantage of that with Java is in addition to the programmer not having to manage all the hardware resources, Java provided an additional layer between the programmer and the machine called the Java virtual machine. And when you wrote the code, you wrote it for the virtual machine. And then the virtual machine on each specific computer, whether it's Windows or Macintosh or Linux, then translates that into the correct instructions so that the code works the same everywhere. This was not how C worked. Yeah. <laughs> in C, I had the printf function on every platform, but it might work slightly different from platform to platform. Um, and there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that the standard for the printf function and for other parts of the C API uh, is, I believe, owned and published by IEEE. It's called POSIX. Um, well, then there's an ANSI C standard as well by uh, ANSI. So these standards for C and C++ are are promulgated by standard setting bodies and not by one private company that invented the language. So that makes C and C++ a little different. But the standards, as, as Kirk well knows, don't cover every possible situation. Um, and so you'll get differences in the implementation from one to another platform. Uh, and they're not, they're not all necessarily going to work the same way, but the fact that they don't is also not necessarily wrong. They could all yeah. be standard compliant, even though they work differently. Java got rid of all of that. Java works for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, one way and the same way everywhere so that I can just write my code on whatever system I happen to have. In my case, I learned Java on Solaris uh, and it's going to run on Windows and it's going to work the same way. And it's going to run on you know Macintosh. And it's going to work the same way. So, And I think one of the key things to keep in mind is in some sense, how revolutionary this was. Um, you know, really, well, like we learned programming and stuff like that, you know, Macs and PCs did not communicate with each other at all. You know, there was no idea of them being kind of a universal language between them. You know, if you programmed in C on an I and a you know, an IBM machine, you learned slightly differently than if you did it on a Mac machine than if you did it on a Sun machine. Uh, and that was the things you bumped into. In some sense, the way people tended to do programs that behaved a little better, and like one of the ones that I had with it, uh, I was a physics major, so one of the programs we used a lot was Mathematica, which had always been my understanding that Mathematica had actually been programmed in assembly. Mm -hmm. um, it was an incredible undertaking that they'd done, but it was part of the reason why it was so powerful is because it basically cut out all this front end. The point of this front end and the idea behind C and all these other languages was to simply make it easier to understand what a computer is doing. And again, it kind of gets to that idea. We say to something, hey, if the user clicks the mouse here, I want you to do this. In modern programming, what you write is, you know, if click mouse here, do this. Yes. If you're going to do this in assembly code, it's, you know, when input A goes yeah. into stack B, move stack C, you know, I mean, that's, yeah. the, it's incredibly esoteric and hard in to understand. In Java, that's one line of code to listen for a mouse click and then, and then respond and do something. In assembly, that might be five or six pages of code to implement all that. Yeah. It, it, a minimum. device driver. Yeah. I mean, and that's the kind of things you're talking about is these are like the, the sort of core things behind it. Java was even sort of one level above C in some respects. I think that's kind of the thing you're getting at. Yeah. It put more on top of it. When we think about modern coding, like my kids right now are doing Scratch, you know, and Tinker and stuff like that. That's like even beyond this. I mean, now yeah. you're talking about, hey, I can just move a digital graphic to something and it knows that I want that digital graphic to do it. Back when we used to do it, you had to generate that digital graphic. Like you actually had to, you know. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, that's exactly right. 
Uh, and and to, to help make this platform portability, they call it the interoperability principle. It's one of the, the core principles of the Java language. Uh, they also had uh, what's called a software development kit, or sometimes they call it the, what's another name for it, but SDK is what I always think of. It's basically a collection of, like the printf function from C, a collection of pre-written functions that, that do common things. Things like, listen for a mouse click, and when one happens, tell my program, what pixel was clicked, you know, and, and what's there. Um, it's things like listen for a keyboard, uh, print a circle on the screen, uh, calculate a cosine, you know, anything a computer might need to do that you want it to work the same way on, on any platform. So the, the software development kit has all this functionality built in for the programmer to use it. You just need to know what the name is of, they call it a method in Java. Uh, that's a object-oriented programming term in, in C, a top-down language, we'd call that a function, but it's basically a shortcut, uh, sort of like a, a function in math where you give it a number of parameters and then it spits back a result. So if you think of like a mathematical function um, where you have like f of x comma y does something, uh, programming languages are similar. I'm gonna call the, the function name like uh, listen for mouse click and I'm gonna tell it the information it needs to know to listen the way that I want. Maybe I just wanna listen to a click in a certain part of the screen and nowhere else. So I'm going to give it those coordinates uh, in my arguments. Um, the name of the function and the collection of parameters that I, I'm going to keep saying function, which is not technically correct. It's method. I'm showing my age here. But um, <laughs> the name of the method and the collection of parameters I give it and what type of, of data that is. Is it a is it text? Is it uh, a number? Though that's called, it used to be called the function signature. Now it's the method signature. Uh, but the collection of all of those for the whole language is uh, the application programming interface. And uh, that API is what programmers learn and you memorize and develop a, an institutional like you know, ready memory knowledge of it over time to develop quickly so you don't have to look it up all the time. And you can go right now and Google the Java API and go see all the documentation for it and how it works and have the same resources programmers use. So the way a lot of times I think about this is think about it if you ever encountered stuff in conjunction with Microsoft Excel. Um, and ever written macros or anything in conjunction with Microsoft Excel. But the example is like when you're working with Microsoft Excel or any of these kind of programs, one of the things like you may type in is you're like, oh, I want to add these six columns to get you know, six like, fields together. What you type is some parenthesis and then you you give the six yep. fields. Range of columns or whatever. Yeah. 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 Some is that that function, that method piece. And what you do is you want to remember what I need is some. It's not add. It's not plus. It's some. Yep. It's, yeah, it's not summarize, it's not summary, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly right. Um, so if you've used any macros in Excel or any built-in functions and you're familiar with this concept, um, one of the, so going back to Google v. Oracle, what exactly did, did what happened? Uh, so some releases Java and uh, Google um, was uh, trying to get into the smartphone business. And uh, whereas, you know, Apple and Microsoft, they had built their own smartphones and they kind of built them up from scratch. Uh, Google had bought this company, Android, and they wanted to use Java as the, the development language for it, basically, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it was a very popular language at the time. It still is. Uh, and so there would be a lot of developers available that they could hire who would already know how to develop in it. And Google would not have to spend the time or money training, well, one, designing their own API, which is tedious uh, and difficult. Uh, and two, I wouldn't have to train developers on it. So there's you know, a win-win for them. Um, now the, the API we should say, you know, well, so what, so what Google took, uh, and that's at stake in the case is what we call the declaring code. 
So this set of APIs, you know, there's documentation online you can see, but to actually use these methods, you have to tell the computer in advance before you use them what they are. And I won't get into the detailed technical reasons for that, but it has to do with that assembler machine code we were talking about. When you build a computer program, it basically reserves space in memory to do certain things. Uh, and it has to know in advance how much space it needs. Um, now, I'm, I'm really, really oversimplifying here. So our, our highly technically proficient listeners are probably throwing things at their, their speakers <laughs> right now. So I understand it's not quite that simple, but uh, basically you need to declare in advance what APIs you're going to use. And the, the, there's something called a header file that you can include in your code that has the APIs all just laid out for you already. So you don't have to go type it in every time. So in C, um, for example, to use printf, there's a library called standard.io, stdio.h. So I just tell the computer, please include the stdio.h file, which has all my API calls. And I don't have to worry about it. So Java has the same thing because Java borrowed a lot of its syntactical uh, conventions from C. And that's what Google took. They took those header files, that declaring code uh, that describes the functions. They took it verbatim, byte for byte, word for word, exactly as it was. Um, what they did not take is the actual implementation of those functions. So although they took the, the design of the API, the collection of, of these calls, these functions or methods, uh, like you know, listen to mouse or draw a circle or whatever, um, they did not actually take the code that makes that happen. They rewrote that all from scratch on their own. The reason they did that is that they and uh, Sun could not agree on terms for the conditions under which Google could use the Java programming language. And it's, it's not very clear from the um, evidentiary history of the case what exactly the nature of the problem was, but both parties do seem to concede that Java's insistence on the interoperabil interoperability principle was inconsistent with Google's insistence on the level of freedom it wanted its developers to have on its platform. So Java basically had some set of restrictions they wanted to impose that Google felt would be too prohibitive to you know, run the platform the way that they wanted to. Um, beyond that, it's really hard to tell exactly what happened. Uh, and, and the court in this case kind of sidesteps the issue because it gets into whether Google was operating in bad faith or not, which the court basically says doesn't matter in this case. Yeah, we, don't, we never get to that question. So for the idea is, hey, this was a bad faith determination. That's going to go to bad faith. They were trying to negotiate it and they didn't, but we never need to get there. So the court doesn't address it. And I think that's the key thing to keep in mind here is you have these kind of weird facts in the back that look like there may be some bad faith, but those are meaningless. You know, for yeah. the purposes of what the court's looking at here, those are utterly meaningless. We don't care. There's actually a great line in the case. I'll find it later. But the court says somewhere, nowhere in the Copyright Act does it say copyright is only for good guys. So basically, the court's saying even if Google was acting in bad faith, it, it's not really relevant to whether it's a fair use or not. Uh, now, that's that's what the court says. I don't think they cite any case law for that proposition, but um, that's some that's probably something people could debate. So anyway, that's what that's what uh, Google took is eleven thousand five hundred lines of declaring code, the SDK about, about. They did not take the two and a half some million odd lines of implementing code. They rewrote that themselves. Um, so you know. Sun got sold to Oracle. Oracle then uh, sued Google over this uh, and shenanigans ensued uh, and ensued and ensued and ensued. This case went to the federal circuit. It went back. It went to the federal circuit. It went up in certiorari to the Supreme Court. Then it went back again. It has been rattling around the federal judiciary for a decade. And then finally, uh, earlier this week, we got a decision um, and there was a large number of issues and claims made in this case one of which is that a patent was also violated, which is why it's before the federal circuit and not the ninth circuit, because the case started in California. 
Um, but that part was dropped. And the whole thing boiled down to basically two questions. One, Google contended that an API or an SDK or a declaring code or whatever you want to call it, and the SDK is the wrong word, API, let's stick with that. Because to me, the SDK includes the implementing code. The API is just the definitions. Google said that an API is categorically uncopyrightable under the Copyright Act. You just can't get a copyright to it at all. Uh, it's purely functional. Is a yeah, lot of it's, it's purely functional and you can't, you can't copyright functional things. Um, and this is something that I've, I've since been told by many developers uh, that they've always believed to be the case. Uh, I don't know why, honestly. I was a developer for a long time. I never believed that. And me and almost every developer I know put copyright notices in our header files where our own purely functional APIs are defined. So um, I, I, I don't, I don't get, find that very credible. Um, but at any rate, um, Google argued that there was no, that categorically they were not copyrightable at all. So the case just ends right there. There's no copyright to infringe, simple enough. Uh, the second question, the second issue was, even if it is copyrightable, and even if it is copyrighted, which is a separate question, or whether it's copyrightable, uh, Google's use was a fair use. Uh, and the court did not answer the first question. Well, they kind of did, but they didn't. They basically said, we don't have to rule on that. It's a fair use regardless. And so Kirk and I are going to break down, uh, you know, the fact, the fair use factors and how the court came to that conclusion. I think one of the things to start with and just sort of say, one of the interesting things about this case is, and, and we've said this sort of repeatedly, fair use is a defense. It's a defense which is used when you are accused of copying copyrighted material. So the Supreme Court's position here is very interesting because basically they came in and said, we're not going to find whether or not it's copyrighted, you know, copyrightable or copyrighted because it's a fair use. But the issue with it is, is that a fair use, and this was a big point of the dissent, a fair use only applies if it's copyrighted. Yeah, <laughs> so it's it's a defense. Defense. You, you have to, you'd have to basically, you effectively admit to the infringement, but say I shouldn't be held responsible, kind of like a self-defense, yeah. you know? It's not that I didn't, you know, shoot the guy, it's that he had a gun pointed at me, right? Yeah. So uh, it's interesting that the, that the majority sidesteps that issue. Um, and it, it may have to do with, with questions of, of jurisprudential philosophy. There's really no basis in the Copyright Act for saying it's not copyrightable. So they kind of want to say that, but they can't because there's no, there's no hook for it. Um, but they, they did decide it on fair use. So let's go through the fair use factors and what they are. So Kirk, this is one of my favorite questions to ask people. Um, <laughs> give me the definition of fair use. Where is it defined? It's not. It's not, um, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's one of those things like we, we, we pick on other people you know, repeatedly when we do these kind of things and stuff like that. Because one of the things you will get is if you, you know, jump on the internet and you start looking at, you know, you know, what is fair use and stuff like that, people will say, oh, it's, you know, you can, you can copy less than 30% of a work and it's fair none use. Of that, none of that's correct. None of that's correct. That's all entirely that's, that's wrong. internet mythology. <laughs> yeah. So what fair use is, and again, it comes to that idea of a defense and it's a good idea to think of it. And I think, you know, your, your thing is, is it's self-defense is a defense to, you know, a murder having happened, a homicide having happened. And that's a good example, because if you look at it, what the court kind of said here is we're going to decline to find whether or not the person actually died. Yeah. We're just going to find that you shot him in self-defense. Yep. And you're going to sit here and you're like, wait yeah. a minute. How can you have shot him in self-defense if he's not actually dead? Yeah. Um, you know. It's very strange. 
It doesn't really matter whether you shot him or not. It was justified. Wait a minute. So it doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> yeah, you know, you have to have still shot him. Uh, and that's the good thing that they did. With it. So that's what we think about fair use being a defense. The, the core behind fair use, it was originally a judicially created doctrine. And basically, it's been codified by the United States Copyright Office. And what fair use is, is it's if you go through the copyright code and the way they have the code, they basically say, here's what copyright is and what it covers. And then they give, I think it's nine sections, which are here are the exceptions. Yeah. Uh, where yep. copyright doesn't apply. So it's one of those exceptions. And fair use basically is a recognition that there's certain things that need to be done with copyrighted material, which are effectively in the public interest. And we want to promote, even though they are technically copyright violations. So I'm going to read the statutory definition of fair use. Uh, it's extremely brief. Uh, and I'm going to ellipses out a part that we'll come back to. Here's what it says. This is, if you want to Google it, Google 17 USC 107. Okay. The fair use of a copyrighted work is not an infringement of copyright. Well, yeah, and that's, <laughs> yeah. that's right. I mean, that's what, what, is, what does that tell you about whether it's a fair use or not? Nothing, okay? That's just a truism. Then it goes on to say, in determining whether the use made of a work in any particular case is a fair use, the factors to be considered shall include, and there's a, a theoretically non-exhaustive list of four factors. Also, in the preamble, it says that examples of things that are fair use are, um, for example... Criticism, uh, comment, yeah. news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research. Yes. I think that's all of them. Yeah, that, that's all of them. So those are examples of things that are sometimes fair use. Uh, and then the four, the four factors are uh, as follows. One is the purpose and character of the use, including whether such use is of a commercial nature or is for nonprofit educational purposes. Uh, that line by itself creates all kinds of problems, and I will give this court credit. It did address one of those problems, I think, correctly. The, the statute begins with a false dichotomy between commercial use and nonprofit educational purposes. Something yep. could be both or neither. <laughs> yeah, it can't be neither, and I think that's the most important thing with this is, you know, you can have a commercial educational thing any private you know school that's out there is a you know educational and commercial um, but yeah you you end up with the statements weird because commercial and educational are not opposites yeah and it's, it's important that it's the it's the purpose and character of the use of the use made by the person who is infringing the copyright not mm. the use made by the author of the original correct so the second one is the nature of the copyrighted work. Again, now we're switching. Now it's not the use. It's the nature of the original. Uh, it doesn't really elaborate on what they mean by that. The third one is the amount and substantiality of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole. Now we're looking at both together, the original and what was used and how much was taken. This actually is one of the areas where the court got into some analysis that's really interesting because one of the big questions was, well, if we look at the API, they took all of it. What's if the work? At, yeah. If you look at the SDK as the work, they took like half of a percent because <laughs> yeah. they skipped all the implementing code. So what is the quote unquote work that's being infringed? Depending on how you define that, they either took almost all of it or virtually none. Yeah. And a good example, like a way to think about that is if I copy one song off of an album, yeah. If I define it as the album, I haven't taken that much. But if I define it as the song, I took 100%. Took all of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? And then the last one is the effect of the use upon the potential market for or value of the copyrighted work. So once again, this factor looks at both the, the market value of the original and the effect of the use on it. And then um, there's also this transformative factor, which is kind of tied into several of these. We'll get into that in a second. 
What's a key thing to keep in mind that I want to keep it so with this is let's just give the law school example because it's you always sort of talk about this. The stereotypical law school example of what is a fair use and why it matters is the example to say if Ben was to go out and publish a brochure that had, took a controversial position, and I would like to comment that I think his controversial position is wrong. In order for me to be able to do so, I need to tell you what his controversial position is. And it would be helpful to be able to quote it. Yeah. And it would be helpful to be able to quote it because I need to be able to tell you what it is so you can understand why I think it's wrong. The court looked at this and said, I should be able to do that. That's good. Because if you can now stop me from doing that by using copyright, I can never challenge your opinion. So that's where both of these sort of outright statements, that's criticism, that's sort of clear criticism, yep. but also that's where these four things came from. It's not that I copied your entire brochure. I quoted you. I did portions of it. The other thing to keep in mind, and just because people get this confused, copyright and fair use has nothing at all to do with plagiarism. Plagiarism is essentially a contractual agreement between you and an educational institution that has nothing to do yes. with fair use. Plagiarism is an ethical thing. It's about academic honesty and, and that sort of thing. It, you know, it used to be that you had to have, um, you know, the, the notice provisions of the co- people are used to seeing that, right? Copyright 2021, uh, Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. And so yep. people kind of get this idea that as long as you put that notice up, that you haven't done anything. Oh, this isn't mine. I'm not claiming that I own it doesn't matter. Okay. I, I don't claim to own Harry Potter. If I go print 10,000 copies and sell them, I've infringed the copyright. Yeah. Even if I put Rawlings name on the front of it, that doesn't get me out of jail. So, uh, so yeah, that's an important distinction. So the court, interestingly, um, took these factors out of order, which is a, a little unusual. They normally kind of go through the statute in order, which is something that we should say was a six to two decision with justices Thomas and Alito dissenting. Uh, Thomas also picked on the majority for this because they sort of start by sidestepping the question of whether it's copyright eligible in the first place uh, and then proceeding to make that decision in uh, this first factor. So the court starts by looking at the nature of the copyrighted work. And their first line is the Sun Java API is a user interface. Now I'm going to editorialize. They lost me right there. It, (laughs) It is in no meaningful sense, a user interface. Then they go on to say, well, but the users here are programmers. Well, you know, I don't want to speak for all programmers, but I think if you asked 100 programmers who the user is of, of their programs, they did say it's the end user, right? And not, not them. Now, from a Java point of view, the user of the API is the programmer. That's not ridiculous. But the reason that I think the court frames it this way is that they want to rely on this prior case, Lotus Development, where it was held that the menu structure to a graphical user interface, you know, file, edit, et cetera, that that user interface is not copyrightable, categorically not copyrightable because it it doesn't meet the threshold for copyright eligibility, minimum creativity and um, um, originality. So I think the court wanted to try to fit these facts into that precedent. And so they they kept calling over and over the API a user interface. Anybody who's a programmer, I think would understand that in a strict literal sense, you could say that with a straight face, but that is not the way that I think most programmers would conceptualize an API as being a user interface. Certainly not in the same way that a drop-down menu or a, a you know a click-through uh, menu in, in a, a program is a, is a user is a user user interface. They're in my mind they're not at all analogous. The amount of of uh, creative effort that goes into creating the menu structure um, there's some, but there's not much. But designing an API, you're talking about organizing the totality of all possible functions you want the computer to perform into a taxonomy of, of names, you know, and, and designing the relationships and how you organize them into what packages and how to do it. 
There are a lot of ways to do that. Uh, and if you've ever written a program, even a trivial program for like an introductory or programming class, you can spend a lot of time just designing the class structure, the methods, and basically the API for your program. That, that is an enormous amount of design time and space goes into that. Uh, and really, once you've done that, it's, in my view, kind of the harder part. Once I know what I want all these methods to do, sitting down and writing the code to implement it is just kind of the grunt work of, of banging out the, the lines of code and debugging it. Um, but deciding what I want it to do and how I want these objects to relate to each other and interact in memory, that to me is a far more creative endeavor than someone saying it's math.cosine. Now go write the code to calculate a cosine. Virtually no creativity involved in that. Um, so, and actually on that note, we should back up. Kirk, the, uh, the copyright here, I've, I've had this conversation with developers before where they say, nobody should be able to copyright math.cosine. Well, I would agree, wouldn't you? Yes. Yeah, and, and nobody can, right? You can't copyright yeah. that. Um, but the copyright here is not a copyright to any one name of any one method. It is the, it's called a sequence structure and organization uh, copyright. It is a copyright to the selection and arrangement of all of these elements together in one. Yeah, so part of it's the thing like, it's not just math.cosine, it's the fact that you have math.cosine and math.sign. Yeah, you know, and, 166 and, other functions in the yeah. math.whatever package. Yep, and th those are all arranged in a similar way. You, have, you know, yep. it's a math function followed by what the math function is with a dot between them. Yeah. And then, you know, and then arguments, what do you give it? Do I, do I give it radians? Do I give it degrees? Are the degrees yeah. in floating point format? Are they in integer format? Um, there's a lot of ways you could design that. Is it math.geometry.cosine or should cosine just be in the math package? Should there be a separate trigonometry package? Like, there's a lot of ways that you can design this and an enormous amount of development effort just goes into figuring out the optimal way to arrange all of this so that the names are memorable, uh, catchy, for lack of a better word, intuitive, easy for programmers to quickly learn and master, which interestingly enough is exactly why Google took it, but also exactly why the court says it's not entitled to much copyright protection, which yeah. makes no sense. It's kind yeah, of contradictory. The thing that you really get into, and I think this is digging into this first part of what the court has to say, is it's you look at it and you say, hey, I want it to be called math.cosine because then everybody knows what it is because we know it's a cosine reference, a math cosine reference. But I want it to be called math.cosine because calling it math.geometry.cosine means people who learned it's called math.cosine won't know what it is. And so you kind of bump into this, this weird thing when in conjunction with that where you look at it and you say, yes, math.cosine is an obvious way to put it, but there's lots of other obvious ways to put it. The only reason to copy the same one is because somebody already learned it. Yeah. And that's something the court gets into in this. And I think it's is in the second step when they get into this. Yeah, that's in the, the second one. They start with the nature because they want to say that this declaring code, which is separated from the actual underlying implementation. So the declaring code is the collection of all these names is different from the code that actually makes it work. Uh, and the court basically says that, that those things are, you know, for lack of a better term, thinner. Here's what they say. Although copyrights protect many different kinds of writing, we have emphasized the need to recognize that some works are closer to the core of copyright than others. In our view, the declaring code is, if copyrightable at all, further than our most computer programs, such as the implementing code, from the core of copyright. So basically saying that um, not all computer code is created equal. The implementing code is stronger, has a stronger copyright interest than the declaring code. 
And the reasons they give for that, if you look to the case, is basically that there's a different type and level of creativity involved. Yep. And that's where they get into this thing of the creativity and stuff like that. And that's that's kind of where they they get into, you know, that the question of, and again, I think it's in the second piece of this, the basically saying in some respects against the second, the second factor in fair use of the nature of the copyrighted work, that these are effectively, for lack of a better term, descriptive. You can kind of look at it and say, you know, these terms are descriptive. And really the only reason to copy this is because it makes it easier. And they put it specifically, as they said, the, the value of them being the same is derived from the time the computer programmers had to spend learning them. That's the reason you make them the same. And really that, that cuts to the idea that this is not something, this should be a fair use because all you're doing is you're, you're using what human computer programmers already know. Mm-hmm. So therefore that should be entitled to less copyright protection because they already know it. What you think about it is silly. It's copyrighted or not the minute it's written. So whether yeah. anybody later learns to memorize it shouldn't play into whether it's copyrighted or not. Yeah, and, uh, and there's a weirdness about that. Keep in mind, what they basically said is the ability to remember it. I'm going to get into it a little bit here at the end of this thing, but think back to our character copyright discussion in our last episode, which should air before this one, but it hasn't yet. Um, <laughs> one of the points is, you know what it is. You remember it. Yeah. You know, so where, where are we getting this statement that because it's easy to remember, it's not copyrightable? You know what that sounds like is trademark. Again, yeah. <laughs> well, here, they, do, they do provide this line, which I think is interesting. Here, here's where the court explains why the API is different. Unlike many other programs, its use is inherently bound together with uncopyrightable ideas, general task division and organization, and new creative expression, Android's implementing code. Unlike many other programs, its value in significant part derives from the value that those who do not hold copyrights, programmers, invest of their own time and effort to learn the API's system. Well, that may speak to the value of it. I would still disagree with that statement, but I don't understand why that means it's not copyrightable. I mean, I've, I've got stuff I've written here sitting on my desk that will never see the light of day. One of it is the, the prologue to a novel I'm writing. I will never publish it. Nobody will ever read it. So it has no value at all. So is it not copyrighted now? That doesn't make any sense to me, right? Um, yeah. And this idea that it's use is inherently bound together with uncopyrightable ideas, well, that's the idea-expression dichotomy. Every expression is, is inherently bound together. The Lord of the Rings is clearly mm-hmm. copyrighted, inherently bound up with the abstract idea of the medieval epic journey, you know, yeah. the, the, the epic quest, right? Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Titanic, the movie Titanic, inherently bound up with the idea of, of the ill-fated star-crossed lovers, Romeo and Juliet, <laughs> not copyrighted. Like everything copyrighted has this problem. This is not unique to declaring code. So I found that particular piece um, really unpersuasive as, as a reason to divide. Um, and I think part of the reason why they went that way rather than just saying it's functional is what well, is functional, but everything's functional in computers. And there's really no basis for saying that that's more functional than anything else. If anything, it's the implementing code that actually performs a function. It's more functional than the declaring code. So I think they were kind of backed into um, using this, this rationale, which, you know, if, if you don't understand the technology, I think it, it looks like it sounds good on its face, but I did not find it persuasive. What did you think? 
I, I didn't find it particularly persuasive. And it's, I think it's one of those things where if you take it and you start applying it to other situations, it really starts to fall apart. I think that's, that's, the, the, that's problem the problem. Like if that, if that works here, then we can take it somewhere else uh, and it starts to create problems. Yep. And I'm going to get into that sort of as we get, so once we get through yes. the factors here, I'm going to get into that as a little bit of an idea. But yeah, I think one of the things you had here is it's, and I think this was a little bit of the dissent. And I think one of the things the dissent really focused on is what you're effectively saying here is it's not copyrightable. Because we're saying it's really something which is function, but then the court is simultaneously saying, but we're not going to find that. We're going to find that it's fair use. And, and that's where I think the, the dissent really gets into the point is this is incoherence. Like we can't follow this because how can you say it's, it's all function while simultaneously saying we're not going to find whether or not it's all function? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that, those are the kind of things that I think you, you really got into with the court. And it's the problem I think you really got into here is the court really got, in my mind, very tangled on the idea that these are single words or small word type of things. Yes. And they are descriptive words. And I think they really got sort of tangled up in this idea that, hey, cosine is cosine. You can't have a copyright on cosine. Yeah. But the idea behind it is you do have a copyright on the dictionary because even though it's all words and the words are arranged in alphabetical order, the choice of those words, the specific definitions, the words that you put in there is entitled to copyright. It's well established. Sequence, structure, and organization. Sequence, structure, and organization. And that's what you bump into in conjunction with it is the court seemed to have kind of topped, it kind of just tossed sequence, structure, and organization, which is unfortunate because it's the obvious way to look at this and, and yeah. the easiest way to look at this. Think of it like the American Medical Association, the uh, American Medical Association, the, the codes they have, the diagnostic and procedural codes. It's an enormous taxonomy of just numbers that correspond to medical procedures and diagnoses. It's copyrighted. What's yeah. the difference between that and this? Yeah. And that's the, the, the real danger with it. And again, we'll get through these last couple of factors and we get to the end of it is what does this mean in the future outside of computer programs? They do and give us some clues anything. on that. And, I, and again, I'm going to give the court some credit on how they, how they dealt with that. So the second factor they tackle is the purpose and character of the use. This is the commercial versus non-commercial. Um, they kind of sidestep the commercial issue by saying to their credit, yeah, it's commercial, but the statute kind of sets up, as we said, a false dichotomy. Something can be both commercial and educational. Uh, and they, they kind of shifted the analysis away from whether it's commercial and more towards whether does this use fulfill the purposes for which we have a copyright law in the first place? Uh, a, a type of analysis I wish courts would do more of. Uh, so to their credit, they, they did go at it here, um, looking at it in, in that context, which I think is, is the correct way to look at it. Um, but their analysis, again, they said, well, it's transformative because they made a new product out of it. Well, no, it's a programming language. The whole purpose of it is to write software. Yeah. The fact that they took the programming language and wrote software for a new platform, that's exactly what Sun was designed to do, is to make it platform portable or what Java was designed to do. So I don't see this transformative to take the world's first and most famously platform portable programming language and port it to a new platform. That's yeah, it's... That makes sense. It's kind of like looking at it and saying Microsoft Word is not copyrightable because you can write a novel in it. Yeah, or, or something new no one's ever done before. Nobody's ever written, uh, you know, um, I don't know, Star Wars. The first person who wrote Star Wars. Someone wrote a space opera. It's new. So we, we've transformed Word? No, <laughs> yeah. that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's I think that's the real sort of problem we get into with it. I think we've sort of already hit the second one a, a yeah. little bit sort of in it. The third one, the amount of portion of the work as a whole, we, we talked about this and this is the thing with it is what's the work? Is the work the API or is the work Java? <laughs> well, and, and the court was good here about acknowledging that this is not easy. There's no clear answer. Um, 
you know, they kind of went through the arguments offered by uh, some of the, um, the, the Amici uh, filers, and they acknowledge just two ways you could look at this, uh, and we've got to pick one. And um, they basically said, uh, in relatively terse terms, um, you know, we're going to pick the, the whole. Um, we're going to say that, uh, it, it, you know, it makes more sense to look at the whole thing, uh, and, and then if you do it that way, they didn't take that much. Um, didn't really explain why I don't think that's the case. I'm looking through the case here to see if I missed it, but um, they, they basically look at the features of Google's copying um, and to figure out which way makes most sense. And again, they go back to the API being bound to the task implementation factors. Um, and they say, Google didn't copy these because of the expression itself. They didn't care what the particular expression was. They cared that programmers already knew it. So basically, Google didn't take this because they valued the, the copyrightable elements of it. It's because they valued the functional elements of it, the practical elements of it. Yeah, and I think there's some mental gymnastics you have to go through to try to get to that. Yeah. You know, Because again, it's the, yes, they valued the functional aspects of it, but if they valued the functional aspects of it, why didn't they copy the underlying code, which is what implements it, the implementing yeah. code? Because that's the implementation, that's the functional. What they really valued was this, this memory, this recognition of it. I think a lot of times when you sort of look at this third one, th there really does seem like there's a lot of mental gymnastics in this third one, but they did find, you know, this was for Google. And again, I think a lot of it was, they looked at it and said, it's Java as a whole. We find it as a relatively small amount. And I'm not sure that that's wrong. I don't think you can say anything's wrong in selecting it as Java as a whole as the API as a separate piece, stuff like that. Yeah. Again, I think there's some potential danger in it when you look at it and say, well, it's this whole thing. Now you start parsing things, which we've been doing in copyright for years. We've been parsing things. What does that mean? Yeah, the, the one thing I said that I strongly disagreed with, and I think, and we should say with its fair use, it's a fair use decision. There's no wrong answer. No matter how the court comes out, you can justify it under fair use. It's inherently, it's possibly the most flexible doctrine in all of IP law. So it's, it's really difficult to say the court got it wrong, regardless of how you feel about this. Although I do think it's possible to, to pick nits over the, the reasoning. But this one line stuck out at me. They said, Google copied them, meaning the, the API lines, because programmers had already learned to work with the Java, with the Sun Java API system, and it would have been difficult, perhaps prohibitively so, to attract programmers to build its Android smartphone system without them. Well, so Apple did. So Microsoft did. Well, <laughs> I, I don't. Yeah, I don't understand why that's relevant. Basically, saying if it's inconvenient and expensive enough to to recreate something from scratch, you can infringe a copyright. I don't. It's cost I prohibitive for me to, to write. Say, but it kind of sounds like it. It's cost prohibitive for me to write a best-selling novel, so I should copy Harry Potter. Yeah, I'm just going to steal the same plot. You know, like, it's not true. Like, there's no way you can do that. Well, so imagine what you did was you, you took, you took uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone and you just copied all of the chapter numbers and titles, but then rewrote the actual story to, to be essentially the same story, but rewritten completely from scratch, taking all the chapters and titles, and then you gave it a different name. It's not Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. It's, it's, you know, it's Kirk Damon and the Philosopher's Rock. <laughs> It was called the Philosopher's Stone originally. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, don't you think Rowling would say that's ridiculous? You just stole my story. And don't you yeah. think she'd win? Probably, yes. I mean, because you'd look at it and say it's presumably a derivative work. It's based on it. You know, it's what it is. And I did copy certain small amounts of it. Now, in that case, I think if you just copy the chapter numbers, well, you can look at it and say, yes, they're numbers. The numbers, no. But if the chapters the titles, have like names, you know, yeah. Yeah. Or the first sentence out of each of them, you know, sort of use that as an example. But yeah, I think you, you, the, the hard part with this thing is that you really get into is it's with this court. 
when you see is we're starting to apply this to things that aren't APIs, it starts to look really oh, iffy. Oh, really fast. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's the kind of thing with it. They say the sort of same thing in the, in the fourth criteria. Um, they basically come in and are like, oh, Android is not a substitute for Java. Uh, so therefore, they don't actually have any Im- impact on their market. And it's kind of like- true. It's not. It's not, except for the fact that it is because they could have used Java <laughs> on, the, on the smartphone interface. Yeah. And if, if you read through the, the decision in more detail, and Kirk and I have, are, have picked out like six pages of a, of a, of a lengthy 70-some page opinion, including the dissent. If you read through it, you'll see a lot of language along the lines of the jury heard evidence that, and the jury reasonably could have found that. And the reason they say it that way is that um, the jury did find as a threshold matter that Google's use was a fair use. And I think most of us figured that's the end of it. Fair use is, it's a mixed question of fact and law, but um, it's, I think it's usually more fact than law. It's, it's rare to have something that is or is not a fair use as a matter of law. The courts don't like those kind of bright lines, except the Andy Warhol rule, which is now gone, <laughs> uh, which I say tongue in cheek. They never actually said that, but uh, it, it seemed like that was the case for a while. And, and I think the thing with this is to really look at one of the things when we talked about the, the implementation of this case outside of it, I think the court did say very specifically in conjunction with this case they're really talking about APIs. And quite frankly, I think the fact that they skipped that question at the beginning of, is an API copyrightable, but we find this fair use, in some sense, makes the fair use finding a lot less transferable to other things. But it also helps with software registrations, because now you don't have to go through when you try to register a piece of software and carve out all the APIs or risk getting some kind of rejection from the copyright office because you're trying to copyright something that's not copyrightable. Yeah. And so I think what you've really got in this is you've got a little bit of them coming in and trying to say, hey, really, the jury found this previously, and we're kind of deferring on this misquestion of law. In fact, as to what it is, the law is not wrong. The problem with it is this is the Supreme Court. So it, it is a mixed question of law. In fact, anything they say about the law is the law. You have to keep that yeah. in mind in conjunction with the Supreme Court. So we've got kind of this, this new basis coming out of this of what is fair use. And, and that's where and we, I talked about it as we went into the second case. I'm going to jump into it now as long as Ben is okay. Yeah, let's, let's talk it. about that because that one's fascinating. Kurt, Kurt just told me about this five minutes before I started recording. I had not heard about it. So Let's jump into Andy Warhol. Um, <laughs> so it's about two weeks prior to the case coming down from the Supreme Court, the second circuit decided the case Warhol versus Goldsmith, um, which has to do with uh, Goldsmith took a photograph of the artist Prince. Um, She licensed that to Andy Warhol, famous artist. She actually licensed it to Vanity Fair magazine, who then gave it to Andy Warhol to produce a cover picture. He produced a single frame image in his kind of standard style, which became the Vanity Fair image. That's all licensed. That's all good. No problem. However, Andy Warhol being the artist that he is, he made a bunch of other images. I'm trying to think, is there nine of them? I think as to what it is, again, kind of in his style, um, you know, as to what you have with it, the idea of these sort of block colors, using that underlying image as to what it is. Um, Those were actually only released upon Prince's death. At which point in time, Goldsmith went, hey, wait, you used my my picture to do all these things. Now, we joke about the Warhol rule as to what it was. It was basically always sort of always the thing. If you look at what Andy Warhol's work is, he always used other pictures and other things in conjunction with that was his style. That was his stuff. And basically, courts found that was fair use because he's Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol. Of course, it's fair use. (laughs) Yeah, that's what he did. And that's what we kind of joke about being the Andy Warhol rule. Now, interestingly enough, the district court basically found in accordance with the Warhol rule. They looked at it and basically said, it's his aesthetic. It's exactly what we expect. It's a transformative use because it's a Warhol. It's not the photo. 
And that then went up to the second circuit, uh, second circuit in conjunction with it. And the second circuit came back and said, no, it's not a fair use. And again, I think this is the first time Andy Warhol has actually been found to not be a transformative. I was going to say, we should acknowledge the chutzpah of appealing the, a, a ruling under the Warhol rule in the first place. I mean, <laughs> that took some guts. <laughs> yeah. But basically what they kind of did is what the Second Circuit came in and said is we can't really look at the artist's interpretation and like, we can't look at it and say, well, the artist has his own artistic vision. He has his own thing. Copyright has nothing to do with artistic vision or intent. It has to do with whether or not you copied something. And the reality of it is, is that they clearly copied this photo. And what Andy Warhol basically did is only muck around with, you know, exposures and, and relative colors and sort of stuff mm -hmm. like that. So what we have in this, and the reason I focus on the sort of Warhol decision, the second circuit found in this case, again, taking a photograph and turning it into one of Warhol's classics. You've seen the Marilyn Monroe, you've seen the, the yep. Ho Chi Minh, any of those things. This is the same type of thing that he, he was known for doing. Campbell's Soup, is that him? Yeah, Campbell Soup is him. That's yeah. not the same kind of thing. He, he did this with a number of famous celebrities in a number of photos. I remember he has one that's a, I think it's called Lilac. It's an electric chair photo, same idea. Yep. Um, we saw, we, I actually got to see a Warhol exhibit in Chicago. We were up there. I know they had one. It's, he's a fascinating person. It's just what it was. I didn't really understand him. I found that exhibit really interesting to understand. And again, as an IP lawyer, because of knowing the sort of things associated with him and what he did is an intriguing piece of it. But basically what they did in this case, so we have Google versus Oracle, the court coming down and saying, taking this very functional aspect of the thing is entirely transformative because you can make other things out of it. Then we have the Second Circuit not two weeks earlier coming in and saying they made something entirely out of it. The district court agreed they made something entirely out of it, which is unique to his style, but that's not fair use and found all four factors the opposite direction. So both these cases are weird that way, right? Typically in a fair use analysis, because you and I do this from time to time, we sit down and look at something, is it fair use? There's usually in most circumstances at least one factor that goes the opposite way. It is rare when I do these at least that I think all four weigh in favor of the same party. Even something as simple as, um, um, let's say, a teacher takes a DVD of Star Wars to school to teach your kids about film yep. and, and displays it, okay? Can't do that. Well, I guess you can now because George Bush signed some law that, that lets you do that now. But, you know, it's, it's the 19, early 1990s, okay? So you, you can't do that. That's, you know, it's considered a public display. Um, you know, you look at the fair use factors and say, well, it's not transformative. Um, so that doesn't help. But it's also not commercial, so that does help. It's clearly you. educational. Yeah, it's definitely educational, uh, but you use all of it, so that doesn't help. Um, but it's not going to affect the market for the original. It may actually increase that market, so that doesn't help. So the factors kind of, in a, even in something that's a slam dunk for fair use, all the factors still don't weigh in the same direction. Yet here we have two cases where all the factors favor Google and yeah. not Andy. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's those kind of things sort of with it. And the issue with it is, is they are in some sense similar copies. Now, the, the major difference I think you bump into with, with Goldstein is he did copy the entire photograph. Yeah. Which is the one thing that does sort of weigh differently here is it's not, you know, 0.04% of it. It's not like he copied, you know, just Prince's nose. Like he copied the entire photograph, you know, sort of stuff like that. And so it's, I, I think you've got a little bit difference in there. But what I think is so interesting about this, and it's what I, if anybody says, saw my tweet and I sort of, you know, posted out in conjunction with some stuff with it, what kind of indication do we have of what is happening to transformative fair use right now? And what is fair use going to do? We have to keep in mind, fair use is 
it, this balancing test, there's no hard rules. What does it mean? And it's meant to be an exception. The courts are always yeah. careful about fair use, the exception swallowing the rule. I, I do think with this Google case, they intended for the exception to swallow the rule because I think they really wanted to rule that APIs are not copyrightable, but couldn't really find a statutory basis to do that. So they've basically ruled that they are for all practical purposes without having to do it. Yeah, they basically ruled that they are and then said that they're, even though they are, they're not protectable because of fair use and in all states, in all cases, for all intents and purposes. But I think the thing that we get into is an example I used, and I'm just going to, I'm going to pop up real quick. I'm going to look at, you know, the thing from this and, and let me pop up and, and look at, here is the specific findings by Google. And I'm going to give you a new example. I want to go and I want to make an action figure of a stormtrooper. I think we would all look at that and say, especially if you listen to our character copyright last week, that is a copyright infringement. But wait, I have copied only the portion of Star Wars that was necessary to operate in a new environment. I have made an action figure. It's outside the movie. That's a new environment. Mm -hmm. It is a transformative use. And it's consistent with the creative process protected by the fair use doctrine. Because after all, if you have an action figure, you can carry out games that you can't do with a movie. And I'm going to use my action figures and I'm going to film something new. Something right? new. Or they'll make a stop motion film or take yep. photos or something. Yep. So I, I look at it and say, well, what one just told us is my action figure actually falls under fair use, even though it's clearly commercial. We have this thing. Now it's effectively a user interface because it was the time the computer program was invested into learning it. Well, making an action figure, I need to sculpt something. Mm -hmm. Sculpting requires a lot of presentation to make a good sculpture of an action figure. So therefore my value as a sculptor, do I not have something different? Now, while they copied virtually all of it, it only comprises a small amount of the code. Well, the Stormtrooper is a small part of the movie. It's not even relative to that important to the plot. It's an unknown character. And lastly, they're not a substitute. Well, of course they're not a substitute. The action figure is clearly not a substitute for the movie. It's a totally different. Wait, <laughs> I just found what I'd say is an obvious copyright violation. Everybody would assert it's a copyright violation to be a fair use, applying virtually the identical Google standard as to what it is. We also have the Warhol case going the opposite direction and saying, yes, all those things are great, but it doesn't matter the fact that you're an important sculptor, or you're an important painter. It matters whether or not you took it. Where are we? And that's the thing that I think we kind of get into with it. And I looked at this and said, I think there's actually some interesting implications for this for things like fan art and fan fiction, where you know a court could readily pounce on this case and say, hey, a piece of fan art that's generated is nothing other than copying an API. Now, the court did a good job of saying, I think this case really is APIs. It's somewhat fact-specific. They did button that up at the end. Yeah. So this yeah. last paragraph, they say, the fact that computer programs are primarily functional makes it difficult to apply traditional copyright concepts in that technological word or, uh, world. Truer words never have been spoken by the yeah. court. That is an understatement of the year. So yep. they say, and so in doing so here, we have not changed the nature of those concepts. We do not overturn or modify our earlier cases involving fair use, cases, for example, that involve knockoff products, journalistic writings, and parodies. Rather, we here recognize that application of a copyright doctrine such as fair use has long proved a cooperative effort of legislators and courts, and that Congress, in our view, intended that it so continue. So they say, we reached the conclusion that in this case, where Google re-implemented a user interface, taking only what was needed to allow users to put their accrued talents to work in a new and transformative program, Google's copying of the Sun Java API was a fair use of that material as a matter of law. Yep. So it's actually a pretty narrow holding. And I think they did a nice job here of saying, we're not messing with anything else. So don't read too much into this. Yep. And so, and I think that is a value to sort of say, you know, when we look at this case, we really can't say this is APIs, this is computer code, this is unique. 
which means that potentially what we have is we have the Second Circuit's Andy Warhol's decision being more accurate to other areas of copyright infringement. At the same time, that case, and most people sort of acknowledge, went the other direction from what people were used to. A transformative fair use was being expanded. And now we have that case sort of saying, no, it's not. It's potentially being cut back. While at the same time, we now have the sort of Supreme Court saying, no, it's being expanded. So you really kind of bump into that question of exactly what is happening with transformative fair use. What does this mean? Unfortunately, and I think this is the real takeaway in conjunction with any case in fair use, we don't know. The problem with fair use is you can't predict where these cases That's are That's the thing. Go. These decisions have very little predictive value. I think, you can, I think you can assume that what this means for practical purposes is that under under virtually identical circumstances, you're going to get the same outcome. But I've been having these conversations with software developers over the last week about this case, uh, because there's been a lot of angst, especially in the open source community, that if Oracle won, it would spell the end of open source. And since, since this case really bubbled to the surface, I've never fully understood that argument. And I've heard things like, well, okay, so then Linux is now unlawful, which by the way, that lawsuit is back. The whole Linux was stolen thing is is back (laughs) as of uh, this week. So that'll be fun. Um, but you know this idea that you can't you can't implement a Unix clone because um, you have to copy the API. Well, the Unix API is defined by POSIX. That's IEEE, not you know not AT and T. You know AT and T I think is part of IEEE. So um, you know th- that standard is out there, and and you can get that under whatever licensing terms, if any, IEEE imposes on it, and do what you like with it. I've heard the same thing about uh, Samba, which is an implementation of the SMB protocol on Windows, so you can have interoperability. Uh, it was, it's already been reverse engineered. Uh, Samba is out there and licensed on an open source basis, and nothing that happens in this case can change that. It's still licensed under GPL3. So I, I don't fully understand um, that, uh, that, that, that concern. I, I suppose there are situations where it could come to pass, but um, in any event, Google won. I I'm actually have the opposite concern. I'm a little worried now that what we have here is a precedent that says, if you don't like the licensing terms of your open source license, just steal the API and re-implement it. Yeah. You know? um, it's, it's, it's a fair use. As long as you make something new with the open source, which you always will, or I mean, you're not going to just remake the same thing. Uh, I, I actually think this, this, there's, I mean, it's remote, but I think there's more risk here now to open source than, than there would have been otherwise. So um, I, I think ultimately the legacy of this case will be more muted um, than uh, people seem to think now. There's a lot of jubilation I'm seeing on social media over it. I, I read this as a pretty narrow holding um, yeah. that applies for a pretty unique set of circumstances. It is, it is unusual in software to have something that is in as widespread of use as Java was that does not have a generally uh, widely licensed on free or generous terms uh, API that you could use regardless. So, yeah. um, and, and, and to the extent that there's not, you know, the reverse engineering law is still in place. Uh, there's still a lot of things you can do. So anyway, I think one important takeaway is, you know, as a fair use case, it's it's impossible to me to say it's right or wrong, right? It's fair use. So the answer is whatever the court says it is. And although we've, we've expressed some, um, um, you know, skepticism over some of the reasoning, I'll say this, the court uh, did a better job articulating the nature of the technology, at least to the extent necessary to explain the decision, than what I expected. Uh, courts generally shy away from this kind of thing. Um, for one, it's, it's rarely necessary to issue a ruling on a copyright matter. Uh, but in any event, um, they, they really seem to have taken pains to fully understand 
what declaring code is as much as they possibly could and, and to, to root the decision in that analysis as best they could. So I do think the court deserves a lot of credit for how, um, how openly and um, thoroughly it embraced the subject matter here. Yeah, and I think that, again, where I see the danger coming out of this case is the court has now said, when it comes to computer programs, this, this idea of the computer programmer's experience matters. Yeah, um, is an interesting thing to have added to this. And the idea that now sort of says, hey, a computer programmer who's spent time learning to do stuff somehow influences a determination of fair use. And again, even if we limit it to computer programming, that gets really interesting really fast. Um, I do think there was a lot of limitation on this. I do think that they, that, you know, in some sense, and, you know, we talk about this, this case has been all sorts of crazy history. Supreme Court cases almost always have crazy history when they come yeah. to anything that's not, you know, politically charged issues. And so because of that, we have, you know, kind of weird facts, weird background with this case as well. It'll be interesting to see if this gets used and how much it gets used coming down, or if this is really a case that gets sort of relegated to the dustbin of history because it's too specific to its facts and nobody really quotes it. So I think that's one of the things that'll be interesting to see. Where does that go? Where does this go in the future in conjunction with fair use? We need another fair use case. Um, you know, we have to wonder is, you know, will will the Supreme Court take up the Warhol case? Um, <laughs> you know, something like that. And, and and those type of questions with it is just what are we going to see next in conjunction they with They do that use? sometimes though. They'll take two cases that present similar issues and decide one one way and the other a different way in order to like explain exactly where the law is between these two cases and which facts matter. So it'd be interesting to see if that happens with the Warhol case. It would be, I, I would, that would be a fun p- podcast to do on a Supreme Court ruling that restores the Warhol rule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, we, we, we should joke, it's not a real thing. It's, yeah, it's not a real thing. Up. We joke about the Warhol rule, but it is one of those things that it's, you know, it, it's, and he's a good example because the nature of his art involved copying. I mean, he, he was a reproduction, you know, like artist. that's what he did. And mm-hmm. so it's one of those things where you really kind of get into some interesting, you know, sort of things like that. But yeah, I think this is, this has been a longer podcast than we usually have. This was a complicated case. It's an interesting case. We decided to take a deep dive into it. If people like this, we can obviously take deeper dives into cases like this at some point in time in the future, but we did it because I think this case is one which has been in the popular culture a lot. Um, people have talked about, and it's really very, I think there's a lot of people drawing a lot from this decision, which may not necessarily be appropriate to draw from it. This yeah. may be something which is much more narrow, which is really not necessarily that major. And when we look at it and say, if it was major, it might have dramatic implications outside of this area. Yeah, d- definitely. So I would second uh, all of that. So, um, you know, if, if you feel strongly about that, I should also say, you know, we try, this is one of those cases where it's really hard to know where to start. You start by talking about the technology and then move into how the decision's based on it? Or do you start with the decision and then explain enough of the technology to make that understandable? You know, we could, you know, the declaring code, strictly speaking, you got to get really far down into the weeds. More than what, if you go to a computer science curricula now, you probably don't even learn, you know, the yeah. importance or why declaring code matters. You just get taught to throw it in there because that's what the compiler expects to see. It doesn't give you an error message when you try and build the program. But, I, you know, I know plenty of programmers who never really learned why we have declaring code and what it does. So, um, I, you know, I don't know that the outcome of this case would have depended on that level of detail. Probably not. I, don't, I think the court looked at this and said, look, it's 2021. We're not going to slap a Google with a two and a half million dollar copyright judgment. Sorry. Yeah, um, based on something that happened you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, especially when, you know, operating system came out and Sun didn't do anything. You know, they were just like, oh, isn't that neat? Thanks. Thanks, Google, for building an OS on Sun or on Java. Look how awesome Java is, everybody. 
then Oroko bought him in suit. So I think that's, you know, played a little bit of a role here in the, in the course decision. But uh, yeah, this, this is a tough case to talk about. So hopefully you're able to follow all this. If not, uh, just uh, pardon the pun, go Google it and you'll find <laughs> all kinds of people giving you their, their, uh, their, their hot takes on this case. So, okay. So we don't have a, a plan for next time uh, yet. This case snuck up on us. We thought we had a little more time before this was going to come out. Um, so I'm not sure what the next episode will be, but now we have, well, we've got a bunch of content to get out. I'm going to have a busy weekend getting all this put together. Uh, so uh, tune in next time. You will be as surprised as we are about what we talk about. Uh, in the meantime, check out our website, lggpodcast.com. It has links to the platforms, uh, download episodes, listen to the back catalog, uh, do all those things. Get in touch with us on Twitter, on Facebook, or by email. Uh, you can subscribe to this podcast on your platform of choice. I'm told that if you review us, new people will find us. I think you guys are doing that or you're doing something because our Facebook page has been going crazy, even though I've hardly posted anything on it. So uh, well done, y'all. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders. You can find Kirk at Kirk DMN. And that's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem Playasem. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. 